making deterrence work in the 21st century. In this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money, Dustin Bassey speaks to Lisa Curtis and Beck Shrimpton about deterrence, what it is, how it works, and how the US and Australia can work together to achieve their deterrence goals. Well, it's my pleasure to be joined today by two internationally renowned security strategists, Lisa Curtis and Beck Shrimpton. G'day, both of you. Hello. Hello. Both of you are in Canberra for a series of defence and security dialogues, and both of you have bios that would take up the entire pod, so I won't go through them all, but Lisa, you're a Senior Fellow and Director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Centre for New American Security, or CNAS. You're a foreign policy and national security expert with over 20 years of service in the US government, including the National Security Council, State Department and CIA. Beck is effectively Lisa's Australian clone, currently a director at ASPE and running the critical technology program through the Sydney Dialogue. Beck has over two decades throughout the Australian government, mainly through defence, but also senior roles in foreign affairs, Austrade, and the major powers advisor to the former foreign minister. Welcome to you both. Both of you also have serious expertise in deterrence theory, what works, what doesn't, and it's the main focus of our program today. Very much looking forward to your views on whether we are actually reinforcing deterrence or weakening it. Lisa, if I can start with you, most people think of deterrence as purely military and specifically associate its development after World War II in terms of how to prevent nuclear war. Deterrence theory itself has, however, been around for hundreds of years, with early co-founders, Beccaria and Bentham, setting out three concepts of their theory, namely the certainty, severity and immediacy of punishment designed to outweigh the benefits of an aggressor taking action. Beck would also say there is none better amongst the contemporary experts than Brad Roberts of Lawrence Livermore National Labs and author of the important book The Case for US Nuclear Weapons in the 21st Century. Beck always encourages people to go out and read it. So Lisa, if I can start with you, These three concepts, originally designed in the context of crime prevention, remain absolutely key through the Cold War and today. Can you give us a sense of deterrence during the Cold War and why it was successful? Well, most people argue that deterrence was successful in the bipolar nuclear world during the Cold War because there was parity in numbers of nuclear weapons between the United States and former Soviet Union. And the concept of mutually assured destruction could hold. Each country had assured second strike capabilities. But I think if you look at the resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, you could say that deterrence in that case involved not only the threat of the use of force, but also a measure of conciliation in that President Kennedy agreed to remove missiles from Turkey and not to invade Cuba in exchange for Russian dismantling and removal of its missiles from Cuba. So I think the important point here is um, for the U.S. to have a deterrence strategy, not just deterrence capabilities. And a deterrence strategy involves non-military tools, sanctions, information operations, even diplomacy. And you also need to understand your adversary. What makes him or her tick? What is motivating him or her toward this aggressive action? And, you know, you have to figure that out. You have to know the context because you're also trying to shape the perceptions 
of who you are deterring um, so that they feel there are, are alternatives to the aggression and these alternatives are more attractive. There's also deterrence by denial, which means making an aggressive action look infeasible or likely to fail. Um, and there's the concept of deterrence in which you make that aggressive action simply unnecessary. And that usually involves uh, concessions or reassurances. And that brings us back to the Cuban Missile Crisis case, which, of course, involved concessions. So, you know, in conclusion, I think it's better strategy to mix deterrence with conciliation and to have a broad-based strategy to achieve the deterrence that you're looking for. It's about both countering your adversary, but it's also about avoiding conflict. It's a key point of uh, deterrence, absolutely, to uh, to avoid conflict. I think uh, often people tend to uh, forget that uh, preparing for conflict is having a strategy to avoid conflict. Uh, your point of deterrence strategy not being solely about capabilities is vital. Beck, uh, I think in the post-Cold War era and as countries began to trade more with each other, we perhaps lost uh, that strategy element around both capabilities and intent, you really did gain an expertise around deterrence through your engagement with US Strategic Command, your posting in Washington, D.C. Uh, how have the concepts we're talking about altered deterrence thinking uh, over the years? Uh, how have the concepts of integrated and full-spectrum deterrence been approached? And uh, where do you see the issue today? Thank you. Um, yes, I got an, an excellent education in, in deterrence. I had, of course, um, through uh, my academic studies, dealt with deterrence theory and always found it very fascinating. But my my real ability to get my hands dirty on the on the subject, so to speak, was uh, through a lot of engagement with, with STRATCOM as they grappled with um, how they were thinking about their concept for, for deterrence. Uh, they were engaging very broadly with a with a range of ideas, and and so there was a, a really nice uh, contestation of of different ideas. But for me, what really strongly came through as being the critical foundations for successful deterrence were three things: capability, of course, um, credibility, which is linked to capability and and demonstrated capability, and intent, which can be um, one of the most difficult elements in that it's a little bit less tangible, but it's very closely linked to that credibility issue. It's no point having capability if it's not perceived that you're going to use it. Um, so perception, I agree very much with Lisa. This is very much about getting into the mind of the adversary and understanding how actions are perceived, why they're doing what they're doing, what the calculation is, and ultimately attempting to influence that calculation uh, to avoid an action being taken or, or to deny deny an action. Something else we focused on a lot uh, in those conversations was the need for tailored adversary-centric approaches. So while, again, you, you look at the problem very broadly, you make sure you understand it, know your adversary or know your competitor. Once you get to the important task of strategy, tailored approaches are best. They should be very much tailored to the adversary, but full spectrum. And I think the culmination of a lot of the thinking that was happening and the debate that was happening while I was there has been realised now in the concept of integrated deterrence that we're seeing in US strategy, the national security strategy, National Defence Strategy is foreshadowing a lot of this and we've seen Secretary Austin talking to this concept um, as well. So, um, look, I think 
the similarities, I guess, o- o- over time are very much around those those core ideas of, of influencing an actor not to take an action, either through punishment or denial. Certainly how you do that and the actors involved, I think, is where there's there's been some difference and their concept has expanded considerably. And in integrated deterrence, it features industry, it, it features every lever of national power, and it features partners and allies. So it's a very comprehensive concept. So, Beck, do you think the world's desire for economic gain and collaboration actually reduced our focus on the need for deterrence? Yes, I would agree that it that it did. It didn't. It wasn't that alone. Um, I think the the reduced focus on deterrence and thinking about deterrence very critically was something of a peace dividend as well. Um, but there was definitely a, a very strong desire to to see economic integration work. And um, and if it did, then I guess people didn't think they needed to needed to focus so much on on deterrence and particularly the military aspects of deterrence. Related, Lisa, do we agree that while some commentators are of the view, of course, that Putin was always going to go down the invasion path, um, that we actually had a serious lack of deterrence problem, not in terms of military capability necessarily, but in terms of intent? It goes to your original point of shaping the perception uh, that Putin simply didn't think that NATO or the EU would respond with meaningful, or to use uh, Beck's word, credible punishment. Well, I think there was a, a lot of failures um, and, you know, some of those are related to deterrence. Um, there could have been uh, contributing factors. The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan um, could have, you could say that was a lack of deterrence or, you know, lack of foresight to see what kind of impact that would have on Putin and others' calculations about um taking aggressive action and uh, the U.S. not having the wherewithal or interest in responding. Um, and I do think that Putin uh, miscalculated in thinking that the U.S. and Europe would not coalesce the way they did. Um, you might uh, find that, you know, the, the years prior during the Trump years, there was um, some deck degradation of NATO. Um, now, I think the Biden administration had really sought to turn that around and revitalize the alliance, but that, you know, takes time. So I think, you know, Putin probably didn't calculate that the U.S. and Europe would come together in the way that they have. But another point that I, I wanted to add on um, not focusing on deterrence for a long time, it relates to this idea that for so long we believed that engaging China, helping China to open to the global economy, would encourage it to integrate uh, with the international community to be a responsible player. And that really started to break down, I would say, almost a decade ago. And I think, you know, when I was at the National Security Council in 2017, the then National Security Advisor General McMaster initiated an, an Indo-Pacific strategy. And what came out uh, six months later, the president signed the Indo-Pacific Strategic Framework, which acknowledged that what we had been doing in trying to engage with China wasn't working. We needed a new approach. Um, and so I think that that's an example of, you know, we were not engaging in deterrence. We were pursuing something else. Maybe we had good reason, 
but um, it, we had to recognize that it wasn't working and we had to change course. Yes, the, uh, the ability to actually identify that something's not working and being able to adapt and change course it is absolutely vital. Your time on the uh, White House staff and the National Security Council is uh, so uh, key to many of these issues. Uh, your experience with Australia through that time, but also before uh, you went um, to, the, to the NSC, you, your engagement with Australia all the way back um, to 2013 and, and, and even before that, I think you've said uh, previously that you and your teams had some early concerns around your great ally in Australia and uh, our relationship with Beijing. Uh, you had uh, a number of conversations with Australian officials and civil society at that time. Uh, can you talk to us about what you were seeing personally and what the American system was seeing uh, 10 years ago or so in the Australian context in relation to Beijing? I might go back even further. I might go back to when uh, the late Shinzo Abe uh, had initiated the first Quad meetings. Um, he was really pushing this idea of India joining the trilateral security talks that had started uh, a few years prior between the US, Australia, and Japan. And of course, the first ever Quad meeting took place in May 2007. Beijing really pushed back, expressed its um, consternation about the meeting. And I think you had, you know, changes in the Australian and uh, Japanese leadership that contributed to the rapid demise of the Quad. And, you know, I think there was a narrative that somehow Australia alone was responsible for the, the collapse of the Quad in 2007. I don't think that's actually entirely fair. Um, and I think an article that came out recently, it was published posthumously by Shinzo Abe, where he had written in June, uh, shortly before he was assassinated, that it, you know, the U.S. had initially been very cautious because the U.S. had been involved in six-party talks with China. China didn't want to interfere with those. Uh, India also had been reluctant uh, because of its tradition of non-alignment. And uh, really, it was Australian Prime Minister John Howard that championed the Quad in those early days. Um, but I think you're right. If if you go to you know around 2013, that was actually the, the last time I had been in Australia. It's great to be back. I was involved with a, a different think tank in Washington D.C., but we were working actually with this think tank. Justin, you were not here, but um, and there was uh, definitely reluctance about the Quad and just a lot of skepticism. But then just one year later, when we met again, there was a, a completely different attitude from our Aspie partners. And so I asked on the sidelines, what's different? What's changed? And uh, the person relayed that um, they had experienced Chinese uh, think tanks coming in and trying to dictate, you know, uh, research and, and what they were doing. And there was just an overall sort of bullying attitude coming from China uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, causing problems and, and um, was not well received um, in Australia. So that's just a, a little personal aside about the experience that I had in um, dealing with Australia nine years ago. It's, it is definitely the case that Australians don't like being told what to do to an Australian who doesn't like to be told what to do. Beck, 
um, uh, you were in the system throughout this uh, 20-year period. You've seen several shifts uh, over that time. Have you got views on uh, the shift that, is, that has happened in relation to Australia's relationship with Beijing? Uh, and in particular, to bring it back to uh, deterrence, are there lessons for us over this time, including with what we've seen with Russia's war against Ukraine in relation to how we grapple with cross-strait tensions uh, and the need, the combined need for both capability and intent to deter in this region? Yeah, I think um, Australian perceptions of of China really started to shift from around 2013. Up to that point, we were willing to really look at what Beijing did as well as what it said. I mean, I think there was there's a lot of consistency over centuries in Chinese strategic thought, but a lot of it probably pointed to where we are today. But some of it also suggested that that our previous approach potentially could work, that assurances and bringing them into the system could work. So I don't think it was folly to try. But um, from about 2013, it was it was action. It was Beijing, uh, China's the PLA's actions in the South China Sea with its neighbours, re-Taiwan, in Hong Kong. It was absolutely um, what they were demonstrating, they were doing, not not even saying they were doing, um, that really got us to, to shift our thinking. And what does that mean? Um, look, I, I think we are still reluctantly coming around to putting deterrence at the centre of our strategic thought. I think that uh, there are strong perceptions within Australia that we're a small country and a bit player um, and there's not a big role for us in deterrence and I would disagree very, very strongly with that because, again, if you look to the uh, where the US has gone and it spent a lot more time and invested a lot more thought in deterrence than we have, certainly um, that concept is very broad and there is room for a lot of contributors and it's an, it's all about an integrated strategy and a, and a range of players. So it's not that we have to... Australia in and of itself deter China from invading Taiwan. It's becoming part of a of a broader set of strategies that are focused on that outcome. We need to double down 100% on rule number one, know your adversary. Couldn't have a more difficult target for that than the very sort of obscure and obtuse China. We often hear we need a, an Indo-Pacific NATO. And I think we've seen something of a... Of a um, reaffirmation of the importance of institutions and collective security arrangements like NATO. I think some were surprised how NATO has reacted so so well. Um, I'm not of the school that thinks we need an Indo-Pacific NATO. We're a very different region and I think we can respond effectively, but we definitely need to talk to one another. We need to organise and I think the US is fundamental as a convener of that particular conversation for, for this region. So I think we need to have the conversations and we need to um, we need to just think about our role within a broader strategy. We don't need to do all of this ourselves. Yes, I agree. Interestingly, you both refer to periods of time and in particular 2013 both referenced. I think it is interesting that perhaps uh, as Australia started to shift um, in one direction from 2013, from an Australian perspective, the balance started to shift in the other way in the US which was seen in some respects by red lines being set and broken um, in in relation to uh, President Obama to President Xi on issues like cyber security 
and the South China Sea uh, promises that were made in relation to Syria's use of chemical weapons gave a sense to countries around the world that perhaps the US didn't have a credible response to certain situations. Did it mean, Lisa, that there was a lack of the certainty, severity and immediacy uh, that is required to have deterrence? And what do you think in the, we've talked about the Australian system, what has happened uh, in particular through your years on the National Security Council, what has happened in the US system to re-engage with the importance of deterrence? Well, I think that's right. I think that there wasn't the immediacy or interest in deterrence. And I think, you know, that's partly uh, perhaps the focus of uh, the Obama administration at the time that you talked about, but partly, you know, what was happening in the world. Um, and maybe we weren't seeing the, you know, the the aggression that China was starting to engage in. It hadn't really kicked in to a degree. I would say uh, 2020 was a, a real turning point. This was, you know, the onset of COVID. China became more aggressive on India's borders. Uh, you had the security crackdown in Hong Kong, uh, more aggressive military activities around Taiwan. You know, you had a whole host of issues where uh, China was becoming very aggressive, not to mention the economic coercion that uh, China conducted against Australia. So I think, you know, that really kicked the U.S. system into high gear in terms of developing strategies uh, to deter further aggressive behavior from China. And what we see in the, the national security strategy, Beck mentioned earlier, yes, a great deal of focus on working with allies and partners, uh, a recognition that the U.S. can't deter China alone. We need the help of our, our friends and allies. And that's what AUKUS is all about, uh, the Australia-UK-US initiative um, uh, to both provide Australia uh, nuclear-powered submarines, uh, but also, you know, the Pillar 2, which is working on advanced capabilities together. I think the recognition is we want our allies, like Australia, to have the capabilities they need uh, to defend themselves, but also to contribute to this uh, multilateral deterrence uh, that will help protect the security of, a, of all of us. Multilateral deterrence, uh, another very useful phrase. I think we'll steal that one. There does seem to have been quite the evolution in US thinking around the strategic importance of partnerships, including uh, for deterrence, that it's not just a uh, US only issue. Uh, in terms of the role that countries, we've talked about Australia, but in terms of the role that countries such as India can play, Lisa, you were in the, the White House uh, National Security Council in 2020 when Chinese forces encroached on the line of actual control, uh, first deaths I think, uh, in over 40 years. Uh, what did that crisis tell you and the US system about deterrence and Beijing's strategy? Well, as, yes, as you mentioned, um, this was a very tense time. Uh, China had started building up forces along the line of actual control between India and China in the spring of 2020. Uh, and this culminated in an actual clash on June 15th, which resulted in the deaths of 20 Indian soldiers and at least four PLA soldiers, first deaths, as you said, since 1975 along that border. And the U.S. 
really uh, demonstrated its support for India. We increased intelligence information sharing with India. We expedited uh, military gear that India had requested. We leased um, two MQ-9B systems for India to increase its um, surveillance capabilities. And you know, we also uh, were careful with our public statements, uh, working with India on that. And I think before that crisis, there had always been a question among Indians, if uh, tensions increase with China, would the U.S. be there? Would the U.S. help? Or is, you know, the U.S.-China trade relationship too important? Or would the U.S. just be disinterested? Well, I think we showed that the U.S. is a reliable partner for India. And that was critical in, um, I think, India becoming more receptive to the Quad. Of course, the Quad had been meeting, um, you know, uh, regularly, but it really was um, the 2020 border crisis that I think both motivated India to invite Australia to participate in the Malabar uh, naval exercises that fall and to agree to high level quad meetings and, you know, really got more invested. One problem, I think, when you talk about deterrence, could India have deterred China from taking that provocative action along the line of actual control? I'm not sure because to this day, um, I don't think India or anyone else really understands exactly why China took that action? Was it to deflect attention from the COVID situation inside China? Was it to gain ground while the rest of the world was distracted by the COVID crisis? Um, was it to warn India off of uh, further involvement with the Quad, which China, of course, does not like? Now, if that was the motivation, it certainly backfired. But I think in order to deter action, as we've talked, you have to understand what the perceptions are of your adversary. And in the case of China, that is extremely difficult. It is an excellent point, the, the fact that there simply can't be a guarantee. That uh, theory is one thing, uh, but uh, it is also important to ensure that all of our allies and partners know that uh, we're not just there for the good times, but if deterrence does fail, that we're there in support. Absolutely a really vital point uh, to make, Lisa. Beck, turning to you uh, in relation to a, a US question, uh, an article that I know you've, uh, you've read and taken a lot from uh, recently in Foreign Affairs, uh, for those of you listening, entitled How to Avoid a War Over Taiwan, Threats, Assurances and Effective Deterrence. Beck, that raised concerns that there is actually a lack of adequate consideration over the assurance aspects to deterrence from the United States. Can I get your response to that article and your thoughts on where assurance sits in deterrence broadly? And if you like, perhaps in relation to Taiwan specifically, do you agree with the authors of that article? What I, um, what I strongly agree with is the, the place of assurance in deterrence theory and practice more broadly. I think what I, what I would question about this article, and I'd love Lisa to follow me from this because I think we have a slightly different take on, on this one, but where I would possibly uh, disagree is that um, if you look at the period and the approach uh, leading up to the to the shift, where the hopes were to fold China in, to to you know, in my view, to provide 
all of the kind of assurances that that we could possibly offer them, the benefits of membership of the international community, the fact of their lifting of of so many billions of people out of out of poverty to a large extent was thanks to us providing um, you know the ability for them to do that. I, I, I see that as as assurances that were made um, and that didn't have an impact, that didn't land. Ultimately, we could not shift the perception in Beijing that it was under siege and that the um, the United States saw no place for it and was seeking to contain it. Now, I think in, in the case of, of Taiwan, it is such a core interest for China. It is you know, seemingly... a, a to China, a peripheral interest to the United States, but it's not when you think about the broad set of interests and the, and the fact that their foreign policy is very values-driven, as is ours. For me, where would assurance come from in the Taiwan picture? Uh, I, I'm not sure there is anything the US could assure Beijing of, but perhaps there's something Taiwan could assure Beijing of. So maybe there are other actors that could look to some kind of assurance mechanism and some kind of assurance role. But for me, I don't think there is anything the US can possibly do to change that perception within China's mindset that there is only one one way with the US. Well, look, I can't really disagree with anything that Beck has said. Um, she's said it very well, and particularly when you're talking about the Taiwan crisis and um, that there's likely no assurance you could give China on that front. Um, I guess uh, I agree with the concept, maybe it doesn't apply to Taiwan, but the concept that if you, uh, you have deterrence and there is a credible punishment or pain that would be inflicted on the adversary if they were to cross that red line, I think you also have to provide some kind of assurance that if the adversary doesn't cross that red line, they're not going to still suffer the pain and punishment, right? So that it's like either way, they're going to suffer this punishment, so they might as well take whatever aggressive action they're considering. Now, where this could hold some relevance is something like the technology front. Uh, the U.S. just took a major step um, that is likely to cripple uh, China's semiconductor industry, um, at least for a certain period of time. We don't want to get in the place where China feels that it's going to, you know, suffer consequences no matter what. You always want to give a way out. You know, we, we want China to see a different future, one perhaps where uh, the U.S. and China could cooperate for prosperity of of both nations. Um, So I think that's part of the argument uh, that I would agree with in the article. It's really interesting. And of course, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, but the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, a big part of that was uh, providing the other side with a, uh, a reasonable way out. Uh, so uh, that is a big question of whether we do have that now. Do, do you, Lisa, think that in the deterrence v provocation balance we've we've got it, uh, we're getting it right? Uh, and do you think that we will continue to be able to deter a uh, military conflict in relation to Taiwan? Well, I think the administration um, has the right approach in terms of preparing a deterrent strategy, um, initiating uh, various initiatives with 
our partners and allies. I mentioned AUKUS. We talked about the Quad. You've also got IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Strategy. I think these are all good things that um, the administration is pursuing. And also, if you go back and you look at Tony Blinken's speech uh, back in May, uh, he makes clear uh, that there's a door open for cooperation with China and uh, the United States on things like nonproliferation, climate change, et cetera. And I think that's the right strategy. Keep that door open uh, for potential cooperation. At the same time, you're working with allies and partners to deter China. You're building up your own capabilities, both military as well as you know economic. So I think that leaving that door open uh, for potential cooperation is the right approach. Rebecca, we'll leave you with the final word. That leaving the door open is important, of course, uh, as long as it's not so far open that uh, we are susceptible uh, and uh, and too vulnerable. Beck, do you uh, do you agree with uh, Lisa's points there? And do you think that uh, a crisis in relation to Taiwan is inevitable or a matter that we can deter in the long run? Well, that is it. That is a tr- tricky one. I um I very much agree with with Lisa and and her framing. I I very much agree that the actions on multiple fronts recently have shown a greater agility and the fact that we can work in different ways. I think that's incredibly important in terms of deterring China. It, it does not just look at this as a military issue. Um, and I also agree that we need to leave the door open because it's it's the right thing to do, and that is what countries like the US and Australia who who believe in in the in the international order should do but we should not expect necessarily that China wants to walk through that door and um that key component of deterrence that we came back to before we must be prepared to fight and win if deterrence fails so um you know stratcom i think they say they're in the business of peace but they you know they seek to deter but if deterrence fails they are prepared to fight and win um so it is you know it's complicated but i think you know ultimately yes we should never slam a door shut we should never leave it too far open but the right thing to do is to make sure that if there were ever an opportunity to avoid war um, we're seeing it we're making it available but we're not making ourselves vulnerable well said being prepared to fight is often the best way to avoid the fight lisa curtis from cnas beck shrimpton from the australian strategic policy institute can i say you haven't deterred me from inviting you back many times in the future i can assure you uh, that you will very very soon it's been my absolute pleasure to have you on the aspie podcast to absolute strategic security defense foreign policy experts uh, i uh, hope to see you back in the building on the podcast many times in the future thanks very much Thank you. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.